Let's see if we can uh, make some headway through our gospel of Matthew 24. We've been uh, in the gospel of Matthew now for several years, and we find ourselves now coming down to a portion of the Matthew's gospel in chapter 24 and 25, and we know that as the Olivet Discourse. And it's a sermon given by the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. They left the temple, they left the religious leaders, they left everybody behind. And uh, the theme of this great sermon is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ. It's a message from the Lord about not only his coming, but the end of the ages as we know it. And at the end of that time, he will establish his kingdom. Now, last week, and I just want to kind of run through this a little bit because uh, it's important that you, you remember that we looked at the eschatology, which basically means the study of end times, the study of last times. We looked at it from a Jewish perspective, from a Jewish mindset. What was in their heads? What was in the religious leaders' heads? What was in the disciples' heads? And we pointed out basically six rough things that we can see from an eschatological viewpoint, the, the Jews' frame of mind as all these things were happening in their time, real time. The first thing they believed, they believed that there would come a time of tribulation, a time of difficulty, a time of trouble. And the prophecies foretold that. And so they looked at their time under the Persian and the Greek and the Roman rule as their issues of tribulation. And so when they looked at that first little thing they had to knock off there before the end of the time when the Messiah would come, they thought, well, we're definitely in tribulation. And then secondly, they also believed that there would come a herald. There would come one before the Messiah who would... Uh, announce the coming of the Messiah. And in their time, that person, in their mind, was John the Baptist. A lot of people thought he was Elijah and different people. And, and uh, he had to say, no, I'm just here to herald the Christ. And uh, the greater Christ got, the lesser John the Baptist got. And then in their eschatology, after the one who would be announcing the Messiah, they would actually come a Messiah. And picture yourself, you're with the disciples, you're with Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, and he's doing all these miraculous things that he was foretold to do. And they really believe that this is it. This, is, this time has come. And when the Messiah came, in their mindset, in their eschatology, they believed that the nations of the earth would gather and they would fight against him and his people. And... So they're kind of gearing themselves up for war now that the Messiah is here. And they're thinking, hey, this is it. Uh, Boy, when he goes into Jerusalem this time, he's going to take on the Roman army and wipe them out. But that didn't happen. And so that offered confusion in their minds. They thought, wait a minute, what is going to happen? And after that, they believed after he would devastate and destroy all the enemies, that he would purify the city of Jerusalem. And even the temple. And he would gather together all the Jews from all over the earth. And he would establish them in his eternal kingdom. That was basic 101 Jewish eschatology. That's what they believed. And that's what the Old Testament taught them to believe. So, when you come to their idea of the church age, they don't have one. They overlooked the whole thing. They couldn't comprehend the church age. They thought all these things were going to happen one after the other. Look at Matthew 23, verses 37. And this is when Jesus, and we've gone over this, but just for review, Jesus laments over Jerusalem, and he says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered you, your children, together as hens, gathers her her brood under her wings, but you would not. See, it's very important to understand that the Messiah came 
the first time, reached out to them, reached out to his own people. And what did they do? They rejected him. They rejected him. If they would have embraced him as the Messiah, then all this would have happened. But that's, that wasn't God's plan, and that's not what happened. You can't kind of spend much time in the what-ifs here of Scripture. But it says that he would have done this, but they would not. They were firm in their opposition to him. And he, he says in verse 38, See, your house is left to you desolate. And we pinpointed there, your house. It's not my house. It's not the Father's house. It's your house now. It's like Ichabod written over it. The glory has departed. You've turned your backs too long and too hard on God. And then he says in verse 39, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they don't see a time period here. They just see this all happening at once in the religious leader's mind, in, in the disciples' minds. And when you follow their thinking, they think that they've been under this, this tribulation for a long time. And they come to chapter 24, and they're kind of ripe for all these events to start happening. And so we see this Olivet Discourse, as Jesus calls it, and it's, a, it's delivered on the Mount of Olives, Olives, and the subject matter is the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's his own message about his own coming. So it's rather important that we understand what's in this. As he said last week, we're going to take several weeks and kind of work our way through this. But just to give you a little bit of understanding, you need to remember that Jesus came to Israel as their what? Their Redeemer, right? He came to them as their Savior. He came to them as their Deliverer, their Messiah, their King. In the Gospel of John, it tells us that he came to his own, and his own received him not. They rejected him. So 33 years after he entered the world, he's about to exit the world. He began his ministry by offering himself to the people of Israel, and he ended it by rejecting them. Because they rejected him. It's only a couple days now before he will be executed. Monday or or Friday. And when he dies on the cross, the very people he came to save and to rule and to deliver, those are the ones that are going to have him executed. In... Matthew 23, the end there, we read that. that he's going to leave their house desolate. You know, that was their, his pretty much last public address to the people of Israel. They were his last final words of judgment to Israel. Do you understand that he never preaches another sermon to them? In chapter 21, in chapter 22, in chapter 23, he pronounced judgment Sermon after sermon, a nation of Israel, and the, the judgment on these fallen leaders and the judgment on the people who followed their deceptions. He came against the false religions, the false teachers. He did it in the form of sermons. He did it in the form of parables. And finally, in chapter 23, he gives that denunciation that we looked at, woe to you, and he goes on and on with the woes. And finally, it ends with your house is left unto you desolate, pronouncement of judgment. And that happened, by the way, in 70 A.D., when Jerusalem was utterly destroyed, utterly wasted. Church historians tell us that you couldn't even, there wasn't a stone upon another stone. It turned out just like Jesus had said it would turn out. Now, if you were in their shoes, you see the Messiah coming, and you see him coming in all his glory all at once. 
What you don't see is that, you know what, there could be thousands of years before his first and his second coming. And Jesus was trying to get his disciples to understand that. See, today even people want to know, well, when's God coming back? When's when's the Lord returning, right? You have people making all these predictions and looking at the Mayan calendar and on radio making predictions, all writing books after books. You know, this is the year. Everything adds up. You know, I just have two words for you about the prediction of when Christ will return because I know he will return. Just two words. They're simple words. Be ready. Be ready. Because he's coming back. He is coming back. He could come back tomorrow. He could come back today. He could go back a thousand years from now. I don't know when he's coming back. But as the disciples approached Jerusalem with Jesus, they thought about the kingdom. In their hearts, they thought that immediately this was going to happen all at once. All within this whole week, and it's all going to be done, and then we'll be in the new kingdom. That's, what, that's what's in their mind. And when he leaves the temple grounds in chapter 24, verse 2, Looked at this last week, and he tells them, There shall not be left here one stone upon another. Even in that, they thought, Well, you know what? In the Old Testament, it tells us that we're going to have a new temple, so this one has to come down anyway. They just, they kind of rationalized that away. Couldn't understand how it would happen. We talked about the majesty, majesty of that temple and how big it was. By the way, it was. Not a Jew who built it. It was Herod, who was an Edomian. But he definitely knew how to build these these buildings. So they had all these little ideas in their head of what exactly was going to happen. And in their mind, they thought everything was right on target. You listen to some of these people on the TV, you know, they're selling packets of food, and, you know, you can buy seven years of food for $2,000, and... All this stuff. I'm not saying that's unwise. But I think purposely to sell you their stuff, they really feel that they know when all this is going to happen. And beloved, all I can tell you is that we're a lot closer than we were last week or 10 years ago or 40 years ago or 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. We're a lot closer to the Lord's return, his second coming, than we were yesterday but in their minds all this stuff was just basically happening one after the other the temple being cleansed he's going to purge jerusalem he's going to overthrow rome they didn't have any idea that christ would come and then he would go back and then there could be a period of thousands of years before he would return they didn't have any idea about that they only spoke of one coming of the messiah They didn't fill in that large gap. And that's how they misunderstood the church age. I want you to turn back with me to Isaiah. I just want to give you an example of this. Book of Isaiah. And look at verse 61. Chapter 61, excuse me. Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61, we have a picture of the coming of the Messiah, the year of the Lord's favor. And look at what it says in verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, and planting, the planting of the Lord, that he may be 
glorified. Marvelous prophecy. And you can see there from verse 4 all the way down to literally verse 11 there, the whole chapter, you have more of that prophecy. Now notice what's in it. First he comes to preach, he says in verse 1, to set the liberties captives and so forth. And then he says he wants to come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the year of the Lord's salvation. And then it's followed by, midway down there, the day of the vengeance of God. In other words, the prophet sees the Messiah coming. He sees the, the, the preaching of the gospel going on. He sees that bringing the vengeance of the day of God. And he sees it all at the same time. It's all in one time frame to him. But that's not how it is. We know that. And then, of course, that's followed immediately by the kingdom, which is a time of comfort, of mourners, a time of beauty of ashes and oil and joy for mourning and all that, garment of praise, a spirit of heaviness and the planting of trees and righteousness, so forth, so on. It goes on and explains that. And then all the way down to verse 11, it says this, The earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. In other words, they're looking at this and they're seeing this whole messianic work as one solid time unit. You'll say, okay, we'll jump back over to one of the Gospels. Go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Because I find this interesting. What plays out here in Luke chapter 4. Now remember, Jesus is in Nazareth, Nazareth in, in Luke chapter 4. He's in the synagogue, by the way. And he was there as a result of his custom. But Luke chapter 4, look at verse 16. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Very common thing. Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. Okay, what did he read? Here's what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. That should sound familiar. It's right out of Isaiah 61.1. We just read it. To proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then the next verse says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And you might say, well, so what? What did Jesus cover out of Isaiah 61? Talked about preaching to the poor, healing up the brokenhearted, preaching deliverance to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, Preach the acceptable year of the Lord, and then he closes the book. He got only halfway through Isaiah 61, verse 2. Why is that? Why didn't he talk about the next part? Why didn't he read that next phrase? It's only a couple words. Because in the mind of Christ, 
It was something that was future. It was something that was future. And here was an indication that what Isaiah saw as a whole, Jesus would fulfill in two parts. That's why he closed the book after preaching the acceptable day of the Lord. The first time the Savior comes, the first time he came, what did he do? He came to preach. But the Bible says the second time he comes, he comes to what? To judge. This wasn't the second time. Jesus, this first time, this is the first time. He's not going to mix them up. They're two different times. And so it wasn't until the Gospels unfold what we begin to see this, this distinction between the first and second coming. Up to them, they had no idea. They just thought it all happened at once. Even the disciples, you go back to Matthew 24, had that same thinking. They didn't perceive his second and his, or his first and his second coming. They had a hard time with that. They perceived that he will come only in the sense of coming in the fullness of Messiah and all his glory. Only in the sense of coming as the fully anointed king, the full ruler, the Lord of lords, only in the sense of coming in his glory forever. So they think it's all going to happen at once. It's all going to happen right now. Here's the Messiah. He's here with us. Now let's get the show on the road. This is going to happen now. They don't understand this long period of time in which the Lord is redeeming people from all over the earth during the church age. They don't understand that. That's not in the Old Testament. So that brings us down to where we are in Matthew 23. And so in verse 3, the disciples ask a question. Rather simple question, but it's a rather detailed answer Jesus gives. As a matter of fact, it goes on for two chapters. And we're not going to be able to answer it all here just this morning. But look at what he says after telling them the temple will be torn down, Jerusalem will be torn down, and there won't be a stone left upon another. And it says, verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, which is a high place, they had to get up there, so once they got up there, they probably needed a little respite, sat down, and the disciples are thinking all along this walk up there, all these things that are going to take place, all what we just shared, and they came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the ages? He wants, they want to know when this is going to happen like anybody else. If I told you, you know what, the world is coming to an end, your first question would be what? When? When is it? I want to know. Got to get my things in order. Get my bag packed. Get ready. Tell us when these things will be. See, and in their mind, they're thinking, is it today, Jesus? Is it tomorrow? Is it next week? Is it a couple weeks? Tell us. We've got a lot to do if that's the case. If this is the end that you're talking about, the final end of the whole world, then the new kingdom and all that, boy, you know, what are we looking for? How's this going to take place? What sign are you going to give us? And there's excitement in their hearts. They're waiting for his answer. I mean, they could see, I'm sure in their mind was Isaiah 9 and that child of Isaiah 9 ready to take upon his shoulders the government of the kingdom of God. See all these Old Testament prophecies that they knew would take place. They could sense what Isaiah had said and what Daniel had said, what Ezekiel had said. It's all coming to a head now. So they're asking, what is this sign? And that's what makes them feel such anticipation. The fact that he promised the destruction and desolation of Jerusalem. The fact that he promised that he would come in the name of the Lord. The fact that he said that the temple would be devastated. And they think it's all right happening within a moment's notice. And so he takes this time from 
verse 3 of 24 all the way through 25 to explain to them, no, it's not imminent. It's not happening right now. And I need you to understand a couple things about that. It's a great way off. It's a prophetic sermon that sweeps them and even us from right now into the future. And that's what he wants to help us and them understand. See, a lot of commentators say, oh, this all describes leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. There's no possible way that that is true. There's no way it can be true. I don't think this describes the church age 24 and 25. Some people believe it does. I don't. I think it has to describe a future time. The time right before the coming of Christ. And they want to know the signs of His coming. The signs of the end of the age. They keep on bringing that up over and over. And so He sweeps them all the way from one end of time to the other almost. But there's a couple key call them interpretive indicators that Christ gives them in this text. And I think they're there for us as well. Uh, When is this all going to happen? It's not just the church age as many commentators want us to believe. But it's the end time. It's the last time. And I just want to go over those today just kind of in a quick review. First of all, I want you to see in verse 8, In verse 8, remember verses 4 to 14, he describes the signs of the coming of Christ. People are coming and they're saying, I am the Christ. They're being deceptive. You see wars, you see rumors of wars. You see nations rising against nations, kingdom against kingdoms, it says. In there you have famine, you have earthquake. Verse 7, verse 9, you have persecution and killing and hating. Then there's kind of a rise in false leaders and really a defection from the faith in verse 11 it speaks of. It talks about a love growing cold in verse 12. In verse 14, it talks about the gospel being preached. And he's describing all these signs that are going to come at the end of the age. Signs of the coming Messiah. But it's very important that we look at verse 8. Before we get into all the signs, we have to understand what verse 8 is saying. That's kind of the key indicator. It says, all these, speaking of all the things I just listed, are but the beginning of, what's he say? Birth pains. The beginning of. Of birth pains. It's the Greek word for birth pains. The actual pain that a woman endures. And she has in bringing forth a child. It says here it's the beginning of the birth pain. Now, it's a very basic question. This isn't biology class, but this is a very basic question we all probably understand. When does... Birth pain occur. Doesn't occur at conception, right? That, that wouldn't be good. Doesn't occur throughout the whole pregnancy. Doctors tell us that, because I don't have any personal experience in this, doctors tell, <laughs> doctors tell us, speaking to several women who have, uh, that birth pains occur just prior to birth. Just prior to birth. At the very end. That's the last thing that happens. And you know you're ready. You're there. Now, today they have scientific monitoring and you can monitor the frequency of these birth pains until they come more rapidly and more rapidly and eventually that baby, this mother is given life of that baby. But birth pains happen when? At the end. At the end. 
They're not strung out throughout the whole pregnancy. Now, there may be other pains involved, ladies, I understand, but they're not the birth pains. And see, he's making an illustration here. All these signs, all these things that are about to happen, they asked for a sign and he started listening to them. He wants them to understand the same thing as it is with the birth pain. These things are not strung out throughout all history of the church age until finally it happens. In a lot of the theologians' minds, that's what happens. Oh, right now, you know, they start talking about earthquakes and they t- start talking about all these things. And, oh, it could be the time of the end. They haven't seen nothing yet. Nothing yet. The way it's going to be right before Christ comes, right before Messiah comes, it's just, it's going to look, this is going to look like a sandbox. Nothing. Mere play. And there's a couple different places in the New Testament that give us illustrations of this. Turn over to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians actually. 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at what he says here. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing about the day of the Lord. He says, now concerning the times, second, what did I say? First, second, first Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why is he saying that? Because we already got what Jesus said on the Olivet Discourse. He already gave us that. But he says in verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a what? Thief in the night. While people are making, or while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains. There's that word. Come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. So he uses that same terminology. He says, I don't need you to give, give you a whole eschatology. You already have that. You heard what the Lord had said. But when a thief comes in the night, he comes very quietly, very unexpectedly, suddenly. And then it says in verse 3, for while people are saying there's peace and security and then sudden destruction will be. The coming of Christ, beloved, will be sudden. The destruction that is entailed with the coming of Christ will be sudden. And then he says there, it's like the birth pains of a woman with child. See, when he wants to illustrate something that comes suddenly and devastatingly, just before the day of the Lord, he uses that illustration of birth pains. And so it's consistent with what, the way Jesus used it as well. Birth pains in a Jewish mind came on suddenly. You know, they didn't have the whole, what do they, give you a shot in the back and numb you and do all that. You know, they didn't have all that stuff. They just had to grit their teeth and deal with it. And it was sudden. And they came on suddenly and expectantly, right before birth. In this way, Jesus' illustration here, Paul's illustration in 1 Thessalonians is the same as Jesus, as he's speaking to us in Matthew 24, when he says that these are things that will begin with the beginning of birth pains. It has to put us at the end, because after this stuff happens, that is the end. So I don't think these things, for that matter, are strung out all throughout history. With that being said, when you begin to have birth pains, they become infrequent, maybe not as painful, and then they grow more frequent and more painful until eventually that baby is born. And that's exactly the way it's going to be in the end time. There will come birth pains. 
separate events, maybe separated by distance, by time. But eventually there's going to be less distance and less time between those events. And right at the time of the coming of Christ, there will be an explosion of holocaustic events across the earth. And so the frequency, the chronology, all these things, it's it's just going to be all condensed down right until before the kingdom comes. That's the illustration we have in verse 8. And so we know that he's talking about the end time. The second thing I want to share with you is found in verse 13 of Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 13. How do you know this is all the way at the end? How do you know it's all the way at the end? Look at what he says in verse 13. But the one who endures to the end, what? Will be saved. But the one who endures to the end shall be saved. What is the end? Well, the end is mentioned in verse 13. The end is mentioned in verse 6. The end is not yet. What end is he talking about? You go back to verse 3, and it says the end of the age. The end of the age. He's talking about the end of the age. He's talking about the end of everything we know. And so verse 13 says, He that in, shall endure to the end, must be the end of the age, shall be saved. Now if this is about all people enduring to the end of the age, sorry, that's not going to happen. Okay? We'll probably bury some of you this year. Maybe you'll bury me this year. Who knows? I don't think we're all going to end endure till the end of the age. So he's not talking about just simply that kind of endurance. People who go through these events, who go through birth pains and endure till the end of time and the end of the age will be saved. So he has to be talking about people in that time period. I mean, he's not talking, he can't be talking to the disciples. They didn't endure to the end because the end hadn't come yet. The point is, the end of the age is the end of the age. And he's talking about those people who are going to, through these things, and endure until that end. So I don't think he's talking necessarily about our time now. The troubles that are coming upon people are coming upon people who are alive at that time. And then another indicator in verse 14, Matthew 24, verse 14, he says, And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony of all nations, and then the end will come. What end? Once again, the end of the age. Same thing. Prior to the end of the age, there's going to be a worldwide preaching of the gospel. There's no way that could be true before 70 A.D. There's no way, geographically. There was no preaching of the gospel around the world completely in 70 A.D. And you know what? Even today, there's not a complete preaching of the gospel around the world today. Speak to New Tribes missionaries They're finding people who don't even, never heard of Christ. They've never heard the gospel. Why do you think we have missionaries that go out? They're not just sharing some old news that somebody else heard. These are groups of people that never, ever heard the gospel. Millions of people have never heard what you hear every Sunday, ever. But it says there, right before the end, it will be preached in all the world. How's that going to happen? Well, that's for a further study. But all I'm here to tell you is, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. And then fourthly, 
Look at verse 15. See, these are all indicators that the end will be here. Verse 15, Matthew 24. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. In other words, it's all going to break loose at this point when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of of the prophet Daniel. What is that? All you have to do is go back to Daniel chapter 9 in verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9. It says that the Antichrist is going to cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease in the temple. He's the one that set it up. He's the one that said, told Israel, yep, go ahead. You can do your temple thing and all that stuff. Well, there's going to come a point in time where he ceases it. And for the overspreading of abominations, he will basically make it desolate. He's going to desecrate the temple. The Antichrist is going into the temple in the future tribulation time, and he desecrates the temple. He just, words can't even begin to tell what he does to it. Until the final end and determination, all who, which is determined by God and all that is done is poured out on the, the desolate. In other words, there's going to be a final judgment as a result of this most unholy act. Daniel says it. He does it at a time when the prince comes to finish transgression, make an end of sin, make reconciliation for iniquity, and bring in everlasting righteousness. That's when all this happens. We haven't seen this yet. This is still yet future. And he's trying to explain to his disciples, look, this, this is going to take time for this to, to unravel. And you can read about all that in Daniel 9, 24, 27. So he says here in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination desolation, you know you're seeing a sign of the times of the end. It's, it's happening pretty quick at that point. But then he also, it's another indicator here about a future time. Look at verse 21. He says, For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. What he's saying, and remember, this is the Lord speaking these words. He's telling them, when you are faced in a future time with such great tribulation that you have never faced before, nor will you ever face again. That's a sign that it's coming to an end. It has to be the time when God's vengeance breaks out. Daniel speaks the same words in chapter 12. He says, at what time, what time? The time of the end, very clearly the time of the end if you compare it with uh, chapter 11. He's got the Antichrist in chapter 11. So there's this future time of great tribulation. And it says that it's something like we've never ever even faced. I mean, can you imagine all the, think of all the horrible things that have happened. You know, tsunamis and holocausts and the Jews and all that. And, they, and what Jesus is saying, that's nothing. That's like just a drop in the bucket as to what it's going to be before I come back. It's going to be incredible tribulation. Something to look forward to, huh? I hope I got my rapture theology right. We're out of here. But it's going to happen. And it's going to happen just as he says it will happen. The worst time of trouble ever in the history of the world. That's going to be followed immediately by the resurrection to everlasting life and the resurrection to the everlasting shame and contempt. The 
time prior to the final judgment. So the future is going to be this great time of tribulation that the Lord has never had. And then in verse 29, you see another indicator here of what it will be like immediately after the tribulation. It says, of those days, listen to this, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. They've already had a hard time of it, mind you. It says immediately after this, the sun is dark. The moon doesn't give off any light. As a result of that, the stars start falling from heaven. And then appears the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. So Christ comes immediately after this tribulation. The tribulation of which he speaks is the great tribulation, verse 21. I mean, it's not like any other time. According to Daniel in verse 15, it's the time of the abomination of desolation. That's the time right before the second coming. So all these indicators, I'm just sharing you, when you hear somebody say, oh, this is talking about the church age. No, it's not. It's talking about years to come. And then finally, in verses 32 to 34, the last indicator here is pointed out. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches becomes tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you will know that he is near. At the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So he's saying right down to the leaves on the trees, you can, you can count it true. When you see all these things happening, when you're so close to the end of the age, he says, the sign of the Son of Man coming and this generation. And you might say, well, what, what generation is he talking about? I mean, it couldn't have been the generation he's talking to, right? That doesn't make sense. The generation that means the generation that is alive when all these signs are happening. In other words, the fulfillment of time of the end is going to be seen by all the people who see these signs. So the signs are reserved for the people who are going to be alive at the end of that time. And that takes this whole thing and pushes it way into the future. So... I I, I trust you understand the whole purpose of this Olivet Discourse. It's future. Now, some things do happen. We do have earthquakes. We do have some of these things happening now. But trust me, they're nothing like what's going to take place then. Um, And I just think that that's, that's an important point that to put it back in our hearts because we need to understand that you know what as we're going to find out next next week no one knows the day or the hour no one no one knows when this will all simply take place but we do know that it will and when we see certain indicators happening we might be a little lighter on our toes and bend our ear a little more toward heaven and make sure that our lives are what they should be. Because the message for us is not to try to figure out all these prophetic things and get every little you know, I dotted and T crossed. But in the general picture, the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back and we don't know when he's coming back, that speaks to my heart. We need to be ready day in and day out, doing, being busy about what God would have us to do. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I know that it's kind of a weighty 
text to get into. And yet, Lord, I try to make it applicable the best I can. And Father, I know that your word is true and these things will take place one day. Father, we don't have to look too far back to 70 AD when you pronounced judgment on Jerusalem and the temple and all that happened exactly as you said. Or even your own resurrection from the dead. You prophesied that or the many hundreds of prophecies that you had fulfilled. That speaks of your truthfulness. That speaks of your ability to carry out your word. And so, Father, if you say you're the only way to the Father, there's no other way except through the Son, I pray that we would take that to heart, that we would investigate that claim, that we would come to a point in our own lives that we would acknowledge our own sinfulness before a holy God and bend our knee and cry out to you for mercy. Lord, save us. Save us from our sin. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our pride and our selfishness. Lord, wash the blood of Christ over us, making us white as snow. We thank you that you did that on our behalf. And Father, I pray that as this world continues to spiral downward and downward, Lord, I ask that we would understand the reason we are left here is to share the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to those who are yet to hear it, to those who are yet lost and dying in their sins. And I pray that we would do that with our lives, with our lips, with our testimonies, with our character. Pray that we would do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.